Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to another edition of Credit Crunch, part of the FIC Focus podcast series. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me, as always, is U.S. credit strategy colleague, Sam Geyer. Uh, before we get going, a little public service announcement. Uh, if you're a regular listener or new, uh, please do take a time to follow and or share, as that helps us keep bringing you great guests and content. Uh, speaking of great content, super excited for today's conversation as we venture into the world of systematic credit, or I guess if you want to be a little bit more refined about it, you can call it quant. Uh, But investment and trade automation, liquidity and friction costs, and the evolution of the strategy, we're going to go over all of that and a lot more with the co-heads of the credit arm over at Man Numeric. Uh, That's Paul Kamensky and Robert Lamb. Paul, Robert, really appreciate you taking the time uh, to join us on Credit Crunch today. Thanks so much for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us, Noel and Sam. Looking forward to discussing a quickly growing area of quant strategies and the credit markets as a whole. Well, don't spoil it all, so I'll write up front, but let's make it right <laughs> into it. Uh, you know, so maybe just to get a lot of the listeners on the same page here, I think, you know, quant is both old and new, right? I mean, we've been around, we've had different versions of automated strategies over the years, but it's really only started to move into the four, maybe over the last three to five years. I'll let you guys tell me. But maybe, uh, again, just to sort of set the foundation, why don't you walk us through, like, what is systematic investing when it relates to credit uh, and, and why do it? Yeah. So in terms of systematic investing and in credit, um, one of the things that got us really excited some years ago is really just the opportunity uh, in a market that has been dominated by discretionary approaches for decades. We have a lot of experience thinking about business trajectories, using data, data science to try to get some sense of what businesses are improving, what businesses are deteriorating, and to try to tap into that opportunity in a market that might not be able to tap into all those data insights as well. Um, And I think, frankly, being a part of of Man Group put us in a pretty unique position. One of the things that I'm sure will come up during this discussion quite a bit is a lot of the challenges associated with trying to, to run systematic credit strategies And being able to have access not only to cutting edge equity, uh, quantitative processes, CTA, commodities, FX, and all of the know-how associated with that, uh, but also having business lines in discretionary uh, credit approaches, having central execution desks that span all of those asset classes, um, and have really a a, a strong backbone in, in quantitative systematic uh, approaches to execution put put us in a pretty unique spot. So um, I think that uh, allowed us to try to tap into that opportunity. And, and I guess, so you guys just obviously talked about, you know, what the opportunity is. I'm curious from the outset of, of you guys founding the systematic credit division, what have you seen in terms of the evolution of the space over, you know, the past five years or, or so when you first started? Yeah, I think there's a, a broad spectrum of systematic credit strategies. Five years ago, I would characterize the quant strategies as very focused on kind of harvesting a risk premium based approach. Um, and that would have a lot of raw factor tilt, a lot more volatility associated with those types of strategies. Over the last five years, at least particularly at, at our, our firm at Man Numeric, we've really focused on honing in on the idiosyncratic drivers of returns. So how do we refine those types of risk premium concepts into what are the key drivers of a particular corporate bond that will outperform its peers or outperform a relative benchmark? So it was kind of an interesting experience. You know, from our perspective, um, we at the onset, we quickly realized that simply porting over what worked in equities into credit wasn't the right strategy. The drivers of credit are very different than the drivers of equities. So from our perspective, it was about how do we leverage new and innovative data sets? How do we leverage new and innovative quantitative techniques that have been well-established and then apply that into how we can invest into corporate bonds in a way that, you know, no one else is doing within the corporate credit space. Now, when you say, I I want to kind of build on that a little bit, because when you're talking about maybe the the equity models not necessarily mapping over precisely, are you talking more like the value and some of those defensive portfolios and that sort of stylistic stuff? 
or something different? Yeah, that's right. So how do you define value? It can be very different across, you know, equities versus credit as a particular example, or even macro versus credit as another example. There's been a whole slew of academic literature on how do you define value or momentum and other types of defensive characteristics within equities. But yet the academic community hasn't really tackled tackled it and how to apply it to corporate bonds. So the world is your oyster um, in being able to understand and, and redefine what it means to capture a, a corporate credit expected return. Um, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, I mean, historically, some of the biggest hurdles that we've seen in quantitative credit strategies, uh, at least in the history that we have, are number one, liquidity, right? So coming up with sort of a strategy and a model uh, of bonds that you can actually trade, right? So that's sort of maybe one of the big ones. Uh, and then, you know, whether it's academic literature or otherwise, friction or transaction costs tend to be another big bugaboo, uh, just given, you know, the, the added cost of trading and the impact of turnover within credit, just given the bid-ask spread. So I guess, how do you sort of manage for a couple of those factors or, or liquidity and transaction costs uh, to ensure that you're you're sort of building a model that can kind of maintain or hold on to the excess return that you identify. Well, I, I think you hit on a really key challenge, and frankly, the thing that's kept quants out of systematic credit um, or out of the credit asset class as a whole. Uh, in order to be able to be quantitative about an asset class, you need to be able to understand what you can trade and at what cost. Otherwise, you don't really know what your returns are going to be. The whole concept of running a back test without understanding if you were to able, be able to actually execute those trades makes it meaningless if, you, if, if it's not something that's realistic. And so um, not only is it a research issue, but also when you're trying to get it into live portfolio construction, one of the things that, that we find really bifurcates the, the industry in terms of systematic credit are wish list based approaches versus really trying to build in concepts of probability of fill and transaction costs into your approach. And this is something uh, relative to my history on the equity side that was so easy to take for granted when you think about quantitative equity approaches. Um, you can just assume that you'll have a full 100% fill rate and you have a very good sense of what the order book looks like. You can get a sense of what bid ask spread is. You have a good market impact model and you're off to the races. In the credit space, no such thing is commoditized or well-known across uh, across the, the, the credit universe. Um, and not only that, it's been changing so much in the last two years, three years even. Um, we've gone through multiple iterations of transaction cost models. Uh, we continue to refine our, our concepts of probability of fill. Um, and these things are a function of the market market microstructure, which, again, has been changing rapidly. So um, they're critical. They have a huge impact in terms of returns and optimization. But ultimately, our view is your optimized portfolio is not optimal if you can't trade it. Um, and so we're, we're squarely in, in that, that side of the camp um, that we need to expose all that information to, uh, to our, our process. Yeah, so I maybe dig into that a little bit because you referenced or alluded to sort of the evolution of the electronic side. And, you know, from my end, obviously, a lot of it's been anecdotal, but you talk to a lot of folks and they talk about sort of the growth in terms of the electronic platforms, in terms of being able to execute and fill trades there. Uh, I guess, number one, how have you seen that evolution? It looks like it's certainly taking a lot more share, whether you're talking market or otherwise. Uh, and then sort of how is that share getting captured? Or, or is it sort of really just having more participants? So you're able to piece together a lot of small pieces or they're actually, are we seeing sort of an evolution in terms of the blocks that you can execute uh, through that electronic exchange side? Yeah, there, there's a lot there and, and I'll let Rob jump in at the end. But um, from my point of view, the electronic venues in the in the credit markets, many of them are not new. They've been around for many years. Um, but what we have seen is the ability to execute at attractive levels when you're trying to track best X or best execution has evolved dramatically. Um, prior to 2021, we were seeing voice trades was very much the dominant market share and frankly was the, the best way to try to access liquidity in many circumstances because you could see where axes were, you could see which dealers were engaged in particular capital structures or particular issues. Um, and that was a great way to source liquidity. 
with that said, it's that's still very much IB chat or voice trading over the phone line by line. Um, and so it's not particularly efficient. Even four years ago, three years ago, portfolio trading was starting to grow, but it really didn't have the market share um, and wasn't particularly as competitive in many circumstances. Um, but fast forward to 2021, and for us, that was the year of portfolio trading. Um, the majority of our market flow is going through portfolio trades. We were seeing um, multiple counterparts with quite aggressive pricing and availability uh, for lots of different names with essentially high fill rates, attractive transaction costs relative to what we were seeing historically. Um, so it worked well. Um, but then first half of 2022, uh, we saw generally pricing back off quite a bit. Um, there was presumably a lot of market share competition prior to that. And when there's consolidation or when there's obviously market volatility, rates volatility that picks up in a time period like that, um, the venues that we saw holding up best after that were, were, were electronic. And so uh, we've had a huge uh, shift again in terms of our order flow, simply trying to track best execution, uh, where we've really changed a lot of our process to, to target electronic venues um, line by line via RFQ, streaming, retail screens, and, and other approaches. Something to add there, Rob? Um, exactly as PK was was saying, you know, electronic trading has been around for a decade, but I, I really do believe that it's reaching its S-curve moment in terms of adoption. Um, so your equity listeners are probably listening to what PK highlighted about portfolio trading and electronic trading and, and the slow rise of that. And that was probably something that they recall about 15 years ago. And they're probably right. There are many parallels to how the equity markets looked you know, over the last few decades to where corporate bonds are today. So I don't think that the credit markets are going to take decades to develop to where the equity markets are. But I think we're actually going to see, you know, very quick revolutions happening over the coming years within the corporate corporate credit space. I guess maybe as a quick follow on to that, I mean, one question I would have, right, because uh, particularly in high yield, which obviously uh, uh, you guys play in, uh, you know, you see these periods of dislocations where, you know, liquidity just totally freezes up and, and obviously your bid ask go sort of <laughs> all over the place. Have you and maybe we just haven't seen enough cycles around sort of uh, the evolution of the electronic trading side in terms of when these kind of credit events happen. Uh, but is is there sort of a, a discernible difference or do you see sort of either a, a, whether it's a liquidity or just a spread dynamic that's different between those platforms and the traditional sort of IB over the phone type of thing when we hit periods of stress? Yeah, from my point of view, we've definitely seen different behavior and frankly, even through different periods of volatility. Uh, when I think back to the COVID crisis, uh, lots of things went dark um, and, and it was not just pricing sources and liquidity in terms of electronic venues. We saw uh, runs go blank as well for many names, especially across the high yield space and even with parts of IG as well. Um, fast forward to uh, regional banking crisis volatility that we had earlier this year. Um, it looked different. Honestly, that was that was less of a market-wide phenomenon, a bit more isolated in terms of the sector impact. Um, but there was still quite a bit of volatility and a lot of concern in the marketplace in terms of what kind of contagion could kind of could 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 grab hold? Um, in that circumstance, we didn't notice as much of a, a a drop in terms of activity in terms of liquidity, both for electronic and voice execution. Um, I think the the key thing for us though is even though one thing that might be easy to get get lost about this is that the, the dominant market share still is voice even today. Um, I think the thing that we're really seeing, though, is that from an execution quality point of view, to be able to really get the best prices, um, that's where we're seeing electronic pick up. And, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the next period of volatility will will in some ways be similar, but I'm sure will in other ways be different. And we'll have to see how that how that all plays out. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's a good point. I think some venues and some protocols are going to be proven to be more robust than others. And when you hit these periods of all, every venue and protocol is going to react differently. What I do think is changing over the last number of years is that investors are really seeing volatility as an opportunity. 
not really a risk to, to shut down and shrink. Um, the ones that kind of have those robust infrastructure and ability to kind of navigate that volatility are going to want to stay in and capitalize on that opportunities, which in my opinion is a very healthy market dynamic. Um, we saw kind of that happen in the COVID crisis. We saw that happen in the more recent 2022 volatility. Um, and I, I think we're going to continue to see that. And hopefully over time, some of these more robust protocols will not only be time tested, but volatility tested as well. So, so switching gears a little bit, just in terms of the corporate focus uh, for, for your strategies, you know, we've talked about obviously the differences uh, between equity and fixed income. So, but within fixed income and credit between uh, investment grade and high yield, how do you accommodate between the differences there just in terms of, you know, the size of bonds, calls, and then obviously duration can be pretty significantly different between the two of them. Um, and even, you know, when you dig into, you know, certain sectors um, like utilities, a lot of those tenors are, are the same size, a lot smaller. Um, and then captive finance as well as another example. Yeah, I, I think there are definitely differences between IG and high yield, and, and you listed off a number of uh, of differences. The capital structures look different. The efficacy of our models and our alpha insights actually look different across the universes as well. The market structure looks different, as you highlighted, size and tenor and liquidity. Um, so there are a lot of fundamental differences, but from our perspective, we do believe that there is there are models that work within investment grade and high yield, and there are model mixes as well that differentiate between the two universes. So from our perspective, it's all about trying to design strategies that work within each of those universes. To give you a, a specific example, for example, IG companies, uh, concepts of momentum don't actually tend to work as well as concepts of value. And vice versa is actually true for high yield companies where concepts of value tend to work much better than concepts of momentum. So there are those fundamental differences. And I think a lot of them is rooted in the fact that investment grade companies are just in a different ballpark of probability of default relative to those high yield companies. Gotcha. No, that, that definitely makes sense. And I guess getting back real quick to kind of that liquidity and transaction costs that, that we were talking about earlier. What kind of emphasis do you guys place on, you know, that portfolio turnover? Because, you know, like you've mentioned, kind of this academic side where, you know, you, you can identify a specific strategy that may on the surface look, look profitable. But once you start to take into account that, that liquidity and transaction cost that comes into it, um, you know, maybe it, it doesn't then look as appetizing. So, so how do you guys account for that? Yeah, can can transaction costs eat away at, at, at all that potential paper alpha that you're looking at? <laughs> it's, a, it's an important question. It's something that we spend a lot of time researching. And I think from a very high level, every systematic strategy has to work within the overall market structure of that asset class. And, and credit is no different there. So we know that inherently trading corporate bonds is more expensive to trade relative to some other asset classes more liquid like FX as an example. Um, and being able to minimize that turnover relative to the transaction costs um, that you will experience is, is, is one of the, the key things. But I would say fortunately for us quants, this actually isn't a new problem. So modern portfolio theory, mean variance optimization frameworks, that has been around for decades. And we leverage that toolkit that has been quite refined and apply it to corporate bond investing. So every day we're always looking to push our portfolios towards the efficient frontier while taking into consideration those transaction costs and finding that right balance is, is one of the keys to that. In, in, in terms of uh, finding that balance, um, that really can get you at that efficient frontier and you can almost find that self-consistent solution where you're trying to take advantage of, of opportunity, take advantage of opportunities that are attractive on a post-transaction cost basis, but that you're not getting lured into trying to trade into something where transaction costs would, would eat away any of the data insights. From a, a quantitative point of view, though, one of the things I love that I get really excited about is once you have a sense of probability of fill, and if that, that model is, is accurate and tuned well, likewise, transaction costs, risks, alpha considerations, when you have all of those ingredients at your fingertips, um, you can actually solve different types of problems too, 
and beyond sort of that sweet spot from an efficient frontier point of view of always trying to to turn your portfolio to stay at that efficient frontier we have some some clients that that look to us in terms of lower turnover options as well so there are tax considerations there are more buy and maintain types of approaches uh, where one robustness test in my mind is that the sorts of tools that we that we leverage and use actually can still hold up quite well in those circumstances as well is there sort of a, i guess you know We've looked at a, a number of things on our side, you know, whether it's sort of a low volatility portfolio and that sort of thing. And one of the things that at least kind of sticks out to me with a number of the strategies, and this may not be true for man numeric, but it's that you have sort of bursts that really account for a lot of your excess return in terms of maybe it's a window of six months or nine months when a particular inflection happens. So I guess, you know, in thinking about the turnover piece, I guess maybe how do you thread that needle if you know if if you end up with sort of this returns concentration, how do you sort of thread that needle to make sure you're getting into the opportunity, but also not staying too long? Yeah, so I think in terms of quantitative approaches, um, you have strategies where you want to position the portfolio at any point in time to be ready for the next earnings cycle, for example, or the next set of month end flows, et cetera. Um, and you have other types of strategies that you want to be even faster and more responsive to news as it comes out and to try to take advantage of that informational edge. Um, so I think you can you can even approach that question in different ways and try to just tap into into the insights as they come up uh, to be able to take take advantage of those opportunities. So maybe changing gears a little bit. So when you're thinking about, I guess one of the things that also comes up to me, uh, you know, haven't been in the credit markets for maybe too long at this point, but uh, when you're thinking about how to model, you know, do you make any accommodation, particularly in high yield, I'm thinking specifically in terms of whether it's a structural consideration, senior versus, you know, unsecured versus subordinated notes or where a bond sits in that capital stack. And then when you're thinking about portfolio construction more broadly, separate question, uh, do you think about, you know, what's sort of the right amount of diversification where you're still, if you're benchmarking, you're still sort of capturing sort of the benchmark movement, uh, but you're still also kind of maintaining a portfolio that you can execute on. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of unique considerations and structural considerations um, that you have to put into your portfolio, because if you think about the liquidity spectrum and the volatility spectrum of corporate bonds, it is so vast um, across the different uh, across the different uh, securities. One unique characteristic that I actually think drives a, a lot of the differences relative to other asset classes is that bonds are actually traded based off of quotes, which are not firm and actionable, which is quite unique in terms of asset classes, and also leads to a very difficult modeling challenge. Um, where you have a strategy that needs to understand transaction costs and liquidity in order to um, in order to bake that into your model in order to finally believe your simulated results and empirics of that strategy. So like PK was saying, I think that there are different approaches that people take um, in order to kind of solve that. You know, one would be looking at this wish list based approach where you don't have those high transfer coefficients where you aren't able to translate your research into a live portfolio. Um, and the second way, which we favor at Man Numeric, is to be able to accurately model those transaction costs as best you possibly can and constantly recalibrate to the changes within the market structure um, and changes that we're seeing within the corporate credit market. And then ultimately run a strategy with a very high probability of fill. So everything from data, portfolio construction, risk modeling, transaction cost liquidity, all of those processes down to what QCIP you're looking to buy and sell, all of those structural considerations have to be baked into that process. Um, and then you can run a very high transfer coefficient strategy. And, and when you have that sort of a high transfer coefficient strategy, many of those uh, applications can be around strategies that are tracking some sort of a benchmark. Um, and as you'd expect, you have senior debt, you have subordinated debt, you have all different types of securities, not only in high yield, even with an investment grade, you have some dispersion. Um, and, and because it's a part of a benchmark, and at least within uh, more long only contexts, it's a part of your investable universe and we have to be able to, to handle all of those nuances. So it's definitely a challenge in terms of modeling to make sure that at the end of the day, when we're looking at signals, it's apples to apples, as opposed to just picking up on 
some known difference from a credit risk point of view or a subordination point of view. Um, and, and then making sure, as you, as you touched on too, that it's diversified. Um, you were bringing up kind of risk considerations or what's the right amount of diversification. Um, I think one of the nice things about quantitative approaches is that you, you really um, are able to, to spread your bets in many different ways to look at thousands of securities every single day from dozens of data sets that are coming in. And diversification is key to be able to, to make sure that you increase your breadth of, of bets, so to speak, that you're able to get as much exposure to different names without putting too many eggs in one's basket, so to speak. Um, and one uh, nuance that, we've, that we came to in terms of risk management that I think has been quite helpful uh, is that, that although, again, in other asset classes, you can think of simply what's your exposure to a sector and are you net long or are you net short, for example, or net overweight or net underweight, it's not good enough to think about that just, just in terms of market value exposure or weight because it matters very much if you have more credit risk or more duration or more DTS in any particular uh, category, whether it's sectors, ratings, et cetera. And so uh, we found that that really the risk management, those sorts of uh, guardrails of the right amount of diversification to make sure that those bets aren't getting too concentrated in one, areas, one area uh, is, is quite multidimensional to, to capture all those different measures of, of volatility or risk. And just for the listeners, DTS is duration time spread, which is sort of a spread sensitivity or volatility sensitivity model uh, that I think was developed by Lehman back in the mid-2000s or somewhere around there. Uh, that does give rise uh, to, I guess, maybe another sort of a related question is when you're managing the portfolios, and maybe this is different across the different portfolios that you manage, but absolute versus relative return. Uh, are you managing just to to drive at, you know total performance versus a risk-free benchmark, or are you benchmarking against uh, like a Bloomberg index? Uh, we focus on both. So we certainly have absolute return strategies, which tend to be long short, and their investment objective is to produce low correlation to indices. And, you know, of course, you're taking those those long and short positions. And then as well, we have these benchmark relative strategies as well, which um, which tend to focus on long only strategies that is designed to try and outperform a, a certain benchmark, whether, you know, you're in uh, it, whether you're in the different universes of global IG or global high yield. So turning a bit to more macro focus, I, I mean, obviously a, a lot of what's being said right now in the markets is based around, you know, what the Fed is going to do, uh, how that's going to affect different macro conditions. So I'm just wondering from your guys' perspective, how much emphasis do you put on that, those macro conditions? Uh, or is it more of a function of, of like we've talked about kind of RELVAL and the factors that you guys are trying to identify in, in the corporate universe? No, that's a, that's a great question, Sam. I think um, it's the million dollar question in many ways. If you can get those calls right, that can be your performance and then some uh, that that can drive all of your alpha expectations. If, again, if you get it right, the problem is sometimes you can't get it right or, or you don't get it right and you have to be very careful from a risk management point of view. Um, so I think at, at Manumeric specifically, uh, a lot of our expertise over decades is really trying to understand um, the improvement and deterioration of, of, of business trends uh, and trying to understand even across the capital structure, equity and credit, uh, where do we think things are really improving and where do we think things are deteriorating? There's all sorts of alternative data sets and analysis you can do with financials, looking backwards, forwards, network analysis, cross-asset analysis, lots of things we can look at in that space. But again, a lot of that can be sort of cross-sectionally focused. Um, one of the things that we've been spending a lot of time on more recently is trying to understand too, how all of those things relate to different macro considerations. Um, and so many different projects underway from our, our, our research team um, and things that we've incorporated into our live portfolios recently as well, where you know the macro environment has some implications for certain sectors, certain industries, certain factors or styles. Um, and you can get a sense of what trends there are in that space. And you can also try to get a sense of, of where we are in the marketplace relative to other times in, in history um, to try to get some insights about what, what the future might hold. And then just in terms of like the, the more quantum mental picture, which is a, a term that I think gets thrown around quite a bit. Was that in the Ant-Man movie, quantum mental? I think it was something something close to it. All right. Um, 
but just in terms of for for man numeric for the systematic credit group how much like emphasis and reliance do you guys have on the output of your models because uh on the surface it seems like it would have to be obviously a balancing act in some way because i think you've seen especially on the equity side firms that have tried to go full quantum or full quantitative have gotten burned by doing that so for you guys how do you guys perform that balancing act in a way yeah the the age-old question of man versus machine or man and machine yep um you know i i think the simple answer from our perspective you know at, at man numeric we are a fully systematic firm so what that means is that we are actually fully reliant on the output of our models so like i was saying everything from that data and the transformation of that data down to the qsips right that our model is going to say hey you know cut risk to this particular qsip and add risk to another qsip all of that is actually model driven with with no kind of human um, human uh, intervention as to say, okay, well, I don't really like this bond or I, I prefer this bond. Um, but you're also right that we do spend a lot of time understanding or at least hypothesizing on where our model could be wrong, right? And as opposed to us saying, okay, let's override that bond, um, we will actually spend our time and energy digging into how do we continuously improve our current models in order to capture what we believe is potentially missing from our existing models? And of course, that's the holy grail of, of quant research, um, because oftentimes in this journey, you know, we're going to learn something. We're going to learn something about the markets. We're going to learn something about a new data set that captures a new driver of returns or a new quantitative technique that's more robust to certain, uh, to certain uh, market environments. Um, and I think that that's that's the that's the important part, at least from our perspective, in in how we implement systematic credit. Yeah, and then digging in a little bit on just in terms of the innovation side of things, obviously, AI has become a, a pretty hot topic, especially generative AI. For for you guys, what do you see as the challenge, like the challenges that adopting AI and machine learning algorithms address in the systematic credit world uh, for you guys? Yeah, so I I, I think it's it's multifold and um, frankly I feel quite lucky to be a part of an organization that's been using these sorts of techniques for, for decades at this point um, even though totally appreciate that that this is quite a new hot topic um, something that hasn't changed is we absolutely view machine learning as a tool or, or AI as a tool to be able to identify trends in, in high dimensional spaces when you have a lot of data um, and, and there's no way around skirting the, the fundamental scientific concepts or statistical aspects of this where you need to have great sampling, you need to have a lot of breadth of data where you, you need to uh, also preserve in sample, out of sample periods to make sure that you're not overfit. You can get burned a lot of different ways. Uh, we've all sort of seen overtrained models. Um, but again, when you have those sweet spots, for example, more so in the model combination space, um, where you have a lot of data, a lot of breadth of history, um, in independent observations, we're able to find really attractive use cases for different machine learning approaches. And I think um, one thing personally that I've, I've actually really enjoyed and I feel like I'm only scratching the surface of um, is even from a workflow point of view and a productivity point of view, I've, I've challenged myself to use, a, to use man GPT at least once a day. Um, and it's been shocking how much more efficient some of these things are versus going to 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 Stack Overflow or Google, um, things that used to take hours to figure out to, how to even write example code um, and iterate on that code. Um, you could spend hours trying to do that from scratch versus asking a few simple questions into uh, into a chat GPT like tool and, and you're off to the races. So I think um, in terms of in terms of growth, in terms of research capacity and capability, we're always trying to do more with less. And I think there's a real opportunity, not only in terms of being able to identify trends and securities and markets, uh, but also to be more productive and to just have that be that new tool. And, um, and as much as maybe we all weren't sure how much we would use Google when it first came out, um, I think the, the time will tell uh, for how much we use these other types of tools, even in day-to-day -day life and certainly in, in an industrial context like this. I just want to jump in. So my I use ManGBT, but I call it Sam Geyer. <laughs> I got the same sort of like technology it. at my disposal. It's just uh, 
more humanoid. Yeah, just, yeah question <laughs> and answer, you know. Um, but I guess taking the flip side of that too, where where do you see the risks then in terms of you know leaning too heavily into AI and, and just even using Chat GPT in the past, like you know you could you could ask it two plus two, what a, what does that equal, and it'll tell you thirteen at sometimes, you know, but it'll spit it out in a very confident way. So how do you kind of you know again a balancing act? So so what do you do there? Yeah, if you ask it two plus two, and this is part of like trading algorithm, just trade on thirteen. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. I, I think you have to be cautious on, on many fronts in, in kind of adopting AI and, and machine learning into your investment process. Um, I think one of the, the things that, that we are most cautious about is having an overconfidence in how you define, in, in thinking that you've defined the problem perfectly, right? And, and exactly as you highlighted, um, we've seen countless of examples where you know, let's say you're using ChatGPT and you ask it a poorly formulated question. I'm sure Noel, when you ask Sam that, he'll he'll give you the right answer. But <laughs> ChatGPT might not, right? And I think it's uh, and and you have to iterate on that in order to kind of get to a result that is most useful for you. And that might not even be the optimal result that you were looking for. So I, I think you have to be just as equally cautious and and kind of dig into the data and really understand. Um, what that output might look like and the guardrails around that <clears throat> that output. But on the other hand, sometimes I actually think within machine learning and AI, you can actually overdefine or overfit to the data that you're actually looking at, um, which is, in my opinion, just as equally as dangerous. Yeah, just to throw a real life example to that, try to throw a, a, a yield curve fitting problem at a machine learning approach. And you'll see, you can very easily see overfit examples with a, without trying too hard. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of like go through exercises on my end where I, I usually try to map like rates versus spread, right. And sort of like regress that. And obviously that moves through very specific regimes over time. And that's one, if you kind of build in too much confidence, you know, depending on your window, you could have an R squared of 60% or 80%. In other windows, you can have minus 20% or zero over something. So it's like it's very, uh, very prickly. All right. So maybe staying with some of the risk piece uh, a little bit, but maybe a different angle here. You know, systematic, I mean, one of the great things I think about uh, systematic or automated strategies is they're built to sort of capitalize on maybe market inefficiencies uh, and identify things that are hard to do at the, at the human level, right? So I guess... Where do we get to the the point, or is there a risk? Do you see, and maybe it's just too far in the future, in terms of where the growth on the systematic side starts to maybe crowd people into the same trades, and just given the natures of fixed income relative to other asset classes, uh, you know, does that maybe reshape the pricing mechanic more quickly than what you might see in something that's more liquid like equities? No, that's a, a great point, and something to really keep an eye out for. My view, though, is that that's really quite a ways in the future. Uh, I think um, at this point, if we think about systematic credit as as an industry or as as a, a broad approach across the, the various market participants, the market share is still low single digits uh, within fixed income broadly. And so the risk really of of being crowded in that space, if anything, you're crowded with discretionary managers that are picking up on similar concepts if if you happen to be overlapping in some idea. Um, so really from a process diversification point of view, this is quite different. Um, and I think we're getting a lot of the benefits of new insights that aren't necessarily trafficked as much. So I, from everything that we see in the data, crowding is not really a risk, but that's something that we need to always keep our eye on and it could creep up quickly. Um, what we found in other asset classes is that um, we used to just monitor crowding and to get a sense of when are certain trades, when are certain styles, when are certain factors getting more crowded. And we could at least have a sense of what, what additional risk or volatility that might drive if, drive if, there, if there are flow events, et cetera. But that evolved into a, a time now where for, for some time, we, we have to actively manage crowding and really build that into our investment process such that we identify opportunities adjusting for the fact that they might have more or fewer participants that are, are 
or seeing certain observations or seeing certain insights. So um, we've been there, we've done that in other asset classes, and I'm sure that that will happen on the credit side uh, in the future at some point. Uh, but it, at the moment, I don't think we're there. And I think if anything, it's almost the other end of the spectrum where education is really important, like trying to understand how these things even work. Um, what does it mean to have a fully systematic process? Can it be fully systematic or not? So a lot of the things we've discussed already um, are questions that a lot of investors still have to try to get a sense of, um, does this make any sense? Am I comfortable with this? What will it, what will, how will this operate through the next big volatility uh, uh, shakeup? Um, those are things that we're, we're trying to really help educate. And, and I don't think it's just us. I think a lot of the market participants in this space appreciate that the community is still relatively small. And I think we're all better served with people to understand really how it operates, how it works, because at the end of the day, when we're seeing a lot of the advances in electronic execution, that can actually beget and, and open up doors for new opportunities for those things. Like Sam, you're bringing up the thought that there could be ideas that maybe on paper, they look good, but after you th consider liquidity transaction costs, they aren't anymore. Those sorts of things can start to become uh, uh, profitable or can, can, can turn into strategies that are actually viable. Um, and, and that is really that tipping point, that S curve that I think Rob was, was hitting up, hitting on before. Yeah, I, I think that's right, PK. I think, I think innovation is going to be the key on the research side in staying ahead of the markets, particularly as the markets pick up on and, and kind of are, are more reflexive to the alphas that we're currently exploiting. And my base case is that our underlying insights will look drastically different in five years relative to what they look like now. And again, will look drastically a different, different again in the subsequent five years. So I guess you, I mean, I just want to pull a couple of threads together here. So you touched on the innovation piece and we've talked a lot about data. Uh, so I guess, you know, one of the questions that comes up for me is number one, what does innovation, when you talk about innovation, what does that look like? Is it happening mostly through the data side in terms of how, because it, I mean, obviously the, the commoditized data feeds are what they are. So are you saying we found better ways to sort of translate or, or derive something from the raw data so that we're getting a deeper learning. Like what, I guess I'm trying to understand process wise as you grow and evolve. Yeah. So it, I, I think it hits a few different areas. Data is definitely one of them. So a lot of innovation in terms of tech stack, data storage, data onboarding. This is something that um, we have lots of experts uh, and, and again, feel very fortunate to be a part of man group for, for that angle. Um, beyond that too, we brought up machine learning. That's one example, but there's all sorts of different statistical techniques uh, that, that we can use. We can apply different uh, models, different uh, structures to analyze that data um, that really can provide insights. Because it's one thing to have analyst forecast information. Um, and you can think of that in terms of just saying, okay, what, what's going to happen in the future for a particular issuer. But if you can leverage coverage of analysts in different ways uh, as, as a, a, a network, for example, that, that gives you yet a completely different insight. It's a new approach to an existing data set. So the data is key. And then I think the, uh, the, the model applications key. And then a third area that really sticks out to me is on the execution front. Um, I mean, we've seen uh, the trajectory where you can go from voice to portfolio trading, to electronic, to algos that use electronic, then to venue selection to pick between algos and venues. Um, and we're definitely not there yet on the credit side in terms of a venue selection algo being the, the, the cutting edge, although you could certainly do work in that space, um, where I think we're just at the, the forefront of really the algo development side on the credit space. And I think being able to, to, to push more there um, all of those are huge areas of innovation that are um, are game changers for for inv investing into credit. So bringing it back real quick to the the topic of risk, uh, I'm I'm curious on your guys' end. You know, I, I do think fixed income obviously has the the luxury of of learning from the mistakes that equity has made in terms of adopting fully systematic uh, you know systems. But uh, for you guys, how do you go about you know uh, 
preventing those types of, of big lapses or errors that might come up and what, I guess, on the surface do you see as those biggest errors or risks uh, in a systematic credit system? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I think that many market participants, whether you're in the market making side or the investment side or even on the broker dealer side, a lot of a lot of market participants have safeguards in place um, to ensure the health of their strategies, particularly as you as you highlight during periods of vol or during periods of stress. Um, and when I think about um, the venues and the protocols, I do believe that some are going to be more robust than others. So when there are periods of volatility, um, investors are going to see um, that opportunity and not not shy away from those opportunities and move towards that. So um, I think the risk of kind of that market shutdown is slowly, but certainly moving in the direction of, of a very healthy market dynamic. Um, where everyone is continuously trying to to kind of capture that opportunity, particularly during periods of fall. And I think I'd add too that that um, this is this is less of a risk; it may be more of an opportunity. But also just knowing and appreciating, acknowledging that um, you can apply quantitative approaches with different goals in mind. I think there's a, for example, there's a spectrum of of simpler raw factors that are easy to understand that that you don't need a phd in these things to be able to get a sense of what's happening what's going on what's driving performance all the way through to the most refined types of approaches um, and being able to to span that breadth uh, and, and have strategies that can really offer different opportunities to clients depending on what it is that they're looking for um, i think can also be a, a key advantage because we've seen all the evolutions in the years where Long only strategies are are popular. One thirty thirty strategies are popular. Hedge fund strategies can become popular. They they tend to go in waves. And being able to understand a lot of that history, I think, puts us in a good position to relatively quickly um, build out that whole pipeline and have 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 the capability to tap into those different types of strategies and opportunities within the credit space. So maybe something a little bit more philosophical and, and Robert, I'm thinking specifically with your, you know, you're just what you just answered. And I I'm, I'm guess I'm thinking in terms of, you know, having these models be responsive and opportunistic in terms of seeing this volatility emerge. And I even just think back to sort of the evolution of, of credit markets more generally and high yield in particular over the last few years, where it seems like cycles get shorter and shorter and shorter uh, in terms of risk off cycles uh, and get more compressed. Do you think about or worry or do you kind of try to model sort of that dynamic, particularly if systematic is starting to train itself and saying, OK, a certain a two, beta, you know, two standard deviation move, that's enough for us to jump in here. And you start to short circuit the, the, the breadth of a would-be credit cycle. Yeah, I, I think it's um, there, there's two dynamics there that you're highlighting. One is certainly the shortened length between volatility, volatility periods. And we've seen that over a very long period of time going back, you know, 50 years and then kind of seeing that more more compressed. I actually think within the systematic credit space, one of the, the things that we try to harness um, is the asymmetry of corporate bonds. We know that it's more asymmetric relative to other asset classes. So can we leverage that both in terms of an alpha standpoint as well as a risk standpoint? Um, and we do believe that we're able to kind of harness that kind of a behavior. So we actually like these volatility events. We're on the side of um, thinking about how do we monetize, how do we kind of understand those volatility events and be able to leverage them within our portfolio. Um, and then the second dynamic that you're actually highlighting, which I think is a structural change within the credit markets, is that during periods of time, we've seen in the past going you know, much further back, call it maybe the GFC as an example, where you know the credit markets weren't as well developed. We didn't have as many venues, we didn't have as many protocols, we didn't have as many participants, um, and there was a freeze, right? There was a credit market freeze during that period of time. Now the market evolution has changed quite drastically since then. More venues, more protocols, more participants, more people willing to kind of step in during these periods of time, like we saw during the COVID crisis, like we saw in 2022. Um, and I think that that changes the overall market dynamic. If you look at the data, what you're actually seeing is that more liquid parts of the corporate bond universe become even more liquid 
during that period of stress, which is a good healthy backdrop, right? Liquidity starts entering into the market during that, that period of time, which is um, a nice thing to see. So in combination with kind of being able to leverage the asymmetry plus kind of a, a healthy macro market environment, I think is, is a very powerful thing. Switching gears just a little bit, just in terms of the future, you know, for Man American, I guess the systematic credit universe as a whole, what do you guys see in terms of, you know, other markets? I know, I know you guys operate strictly in the corporate world, but are there other markets where you think um, systematic credit systems could be applied, uh, you know, just off the top of my head thinking munis or structured credit are, are areas where I'm guessing right now it's pretty low penetration in terms of people jumping into that space. But for you guys, have you started to explore that at all? Yeah, so we think we think there's lots of areas that that the systematic approaches can apply. Um, honestly, there is a careers plus plus worth of work uh, still to do in this space, um, which I'm super excited by. And as has come up a few times during this conversation, I think these things are going to happen sooner rather than later and faster than you might expect. Um, there are real challenges when you think of how many active munis are out there is from a data point of view, from a security mapping point of view. So there's a lot of work to be done, but you do it once within the corporate bond sort of sub-asset class and and all of a sudden it doesn't feel so hard when you're doing when you're doing it beyond other other spaces. So um, I'd love to try to target to get something where we really can have as broad idiosyncratic security selection or, or security selection broadly um, across the entire global ag universe um, and, and beyond too. I think there's a lot of opportunity potentially in uh, emerging market debt as well um, to, to even span outside of just more corporate focus. But we're, we're seeing a lot of interesting things when you're trying to understand rates and relationships uh, with macroeconomic variables and rates moves as well. Um, again, the kind of thing that if you can get it right, that can be that can be really beneficial. So um, as Rob said before, the world's your oyster in many ways. And I think um, if you can get access to the data and if you can understand the, the, the execution profile from a liquidity and probability fill point of view, um, I think at this point, what we've seen is that systematic approaches really can work well across asset classes. And I've, in, in, in many ways, credit felt like uh, or fixed income feels like the last frontier of, of a major asset class to really move into the electronic space. Um, and I think we're to that point now where, where, where we're, we've shown that, that, that you can do it. And then uh, we haven't really talked all that much, but just in terms of, you know, like the global viewpoint in terms of those differences between different regions, what have you guys seen in terms of, of those differences uh, when it comes to, to your strategies? Yeah, just a quick, a quick one to kick off. I think we definitely noticed that you can't assume the market microstructure is the same between different, different geographies. Um, not only are there known differences between high yield and IG, but there's also known differences if you're talking about trading CAD bonds versus USD bonds versus GBP versus yen. Um, it, all of those submarkets actually have quite different characteristics and, and flavors and having a central credit, credit execution desk really helps tackle a lot of that because you need to have people on the ground that understand all of that. We need to be able to build all those features into our models, which does turn into a big, a, a big data exercise, but um, at the end of the day is critical when you're trying to understand, again, where are the opportunities that you can really take advantage of some of the insights uh, and be able to have an optimal portfolio that you can really trade. Um, but Rob, maybe you have some thoughts too in terms of more international nuances or differences. No, I think the structural differences that, that you're highlighting around trading and liquidity, I think are obviously very important um, as you're thinking about active strategies within the space. Um, and then Sam, you also you also highlighted kind of some of the the other kind of market structure differences around kind of concentration of sectors and and things like that. Um, I do think that there it kind of just shifts the balance when you're thinking about it from a modeling perspective of how much idiosyncratic content you want, which is you know thinking about what is the right double B energy bond that will outperform or that will underperform a particular bench. Um, and then you'll more so focus and shift towards those idiosyncratic models as opposed to kind of the, the more group bets um, if there's a higher concentration within those those markets. And, and I, would, I would just add too, I was just thinking there's a time element to this as well. 
where having data sets that are updating essentially 24 seven around the clock, being able to run portfolio optimization processes in near real time, these kinds of things also let you essentially have the process turned on all day, every day. Um, and when I think about it in comparison with discretionary approaches where you could have investment committee processes that could take at least a day or even weeks to build up a thesis when you're trying to add to a position in meaningfully or to meaningfully reduce a position. And um, there's nothing wrong with discretionary processes broadly. I think we've seen this in other asset classes. They, they can very much coexist and it makes a lot of sense that they do. Um, but I think that there is so much data out there. There are so many trends and being able to tap into all those data sets over the course of the day to tap into regional differences and nuances um, really can, can, can help from a, an informational advantage point of view. So that leans into something that, that I'm also curious about in terms of uh, systematic, in terms of as a complement to that more discretionary piece in terms of the traditional long only portfolio management uh, do you see, in addition to sort of as a standalone opportunity, do you see sort of being able to leverage systematic into that environment where it sort of is a, a complement to helping a portfolio manager maybe shorten up that investment committee process from, you know, and I've been in those where, you know, you're, you're spending two or three days doing the research, you got to present it to the trader and the PM, and then maybe they can only get $5 million, but they need a $20 million piece or whatever it happens to be, and then you're back to the drawing board. Uh, do we see this as sort of a, a multi-pronged tool where you can kind of layer it into that process as well, or do you not even bother thinking about that? I think there's an opportunity for that. I think that goes back to kind of the, the quantumental um, type of discussion where not only are you extending the insights that you can gather from a systematic strategy around alpha considerations, around you know now casting KPIs and understanding all those alternative data sets, um, and bringing that into a discretionary investment process. Of course, there are challenges associated with that, but then also taking some of our techniques around portfolio construction and risk modeling and liquidity analysis. I think that opportunity definitely exists um, and, and certainly can be a, an exciting area of research. Um, but I also think that you know, right now, the way that most allocators are thinking about it is there's almost two different types of strategies, right? There's the fully systematic, and then there's discretionary, and then you know, some sort of hybrid along the way uh, around that. Um, and I do believe on the fully systematic side, we are picking up something that's truly unique within the corporate credit space. Um, and I think that that overall is going to be very complementary to how traditionary discretionary investors look at the world. So I guess maybe more macro, uh, and, and it kind of touches on, again, sort of Robert, what you just hit on, but I guess, what does success look like uh, in systematic and maybe for man numeric specifically, if you'd like, what is, you know, five years down the road, you know, what kind of has you pop in the champagne cork here? Five years down the road to pop the nice champagne. All right, let's see. Um, <laughs> um, I think I think looking down the road, um, quantitative credit strategies, in, in my mind, a success would be for it to grow into becoming a pillar within the asset allocation framework of global allocators. So we've seen quant equity and quant macro and, and quant and other asset classes become a, a true allocation beyond kind of, you know, whatever it might be, public equities and discretionary based strategies or uh, private equity or private credit and having this kind of separate pillar uh, of quant macro as a diversifying source of alpha um, within their within their asset allocation scheme. I think that that would be a, a sign of success for the overall industry and for us. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I, I absolutely would second that. Um, and I, one thing I would add would be at the end of the day, when we think about our clients and the, the actual asset owners, the pensioners, the, the firefighters, the nurses, so on, um, you want to try to be able to do more with less and to be efficient. And I mean, we, we you can talk about AI and machine learning as this kind of new age fun thing um, and a fun technique, but really if we can be efficient and if we can do things at scale, and try to generate good returns for people with robust risk management processes and do that all in a, in a, in a really well formulated way. Um, 
I really hope that even as an industry, we can add a lot of value that and it, that might be kind of contentious in terms of implications that that has in terms of the rest of the market share. But um, I really think there's a value proposition that we can we can do more for for the, the, the end investors uh, and to try to be able to have good insights and to do that efficiently with scale um, in, in, in a way that really, really helps people. Great. So. Uh, just maybe to wrap up here. So if you're following the corporate credit space, you know, listen, I think paying attention to the growth and automation, uh, the evolution of systematic over the coming years, uh, you know, I can only see it becoming more important. Uh, that's certainly in my view. Uh, but in terms of if you're trying to understand the marketplace, price action, et cetera. So I think, you know, it's a really critical conversation to not only have today, but to keep having. So with that, uh, I'd like to once again thank man numerics, but Robert Lamb and Paul Kamensky uh, for joining us here on Credit Crunch. Paul, you wanted one last word. No, I just want to say thanks so much for having us. Uh, I really, really appreciate it. It was a great time. Mm-hmm.